Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hey, mad listeners. Thanks for tuning in. What's good in your corner of the world? Have you been on a restful and restorative vacation since our last episode? Or maybe you have one coming up. Vacation or not, we hope life is treating you well both personally and professionally. Now let's move on to the real reason you're here, to catch up on some of the articles from the most recent issue of Modern Optometry. This episode is chock full of some really great information. Let's hear about how to participate in clinical trials first, then we'll move on to learning the fundamentals of biography. Ready? Then give a listen to Jason Chin of Andover Eye Associates in Massachusetts. If you've ever thought about getting involved in clinical trials, he has some vital information for you to take into consideration before doing so. With the past breakthrough development of COVID-19 vaccines and novel potential treatments, clinical trials have never been more top of the mind among us, our patients, and the general public. In eye care, research barely experienced a slowdown during the pandemic. Ocular surface disease, now and for the foreseeable future, will be a particular active area. Research also becomes relevant when we consider the baby boomer population, which is a high risk for dry eye and age-related conditions. Clinically, there is a large push towards developing ways to detect changes associated with macular degeneration earlier in the disease for more successful interventions. As optometrists, we are on the forefront of primary eye care, and innovative new treatments in these areas will greatly affect our patients. Getting involved in clinical research can provide an inside look at the therapeutic pipeline while enabling us to gain experience with a novel treatment. But it may not be a great fit for everyone. You'll want to give serious consideration to the points addressed below before you apply to participate as an investigator in a study. Aside from providing an inside look at treatments and technologies that are in development, Being a part of clinical trials can also provide cutting-edge therapeutic options to patients, giving them access to treatments they otherwise would not have had. This can improve their outcomes at no cost to them and increase their satisfaction with their care. Offering research trials also serves as a marketing tool that sets your practice apart from others. You will notice an influx of new patients who may not have come to your practice if not for the research opportunity and may become established patients. Being a clinical trial site provides an additional revenue stream separate from the day-to-day practice, potentially increasing profitability. As an investigator, you are paid through an outside sponsor or contract research organization, also known as a CRO, which usually offers a per-patient reimbursement that works out to be a higher monetary return per patient encounter than can be obtained through third-party insurance reimbursement. Some large practices are known to bring in 30 to 40% of their annual revenue through clinical trials alone. Of course, there are other financial considerations. Your net financial gain will be the total reimbursement or compensation you contractually agreed to receive for completing the study, minus the expenses occurred from conducting the study. The total fee paid to you will vary, depending on the study and the sponsor. The fee may be a set amount for each patient encounter or a total amount for the number of completed patients. Expenses you may need to consider may or may not include your total overhead for running the office. Rent. Now, this is generally not a factor as you're paying rent regardless of whether you are participating in a clinical trial or not. 
support staff. This is not necessarily a factor either if you run trials during your normal operating hours. You may already be paying the staff for seeing patients. If you run trials on weekends and your practice is not usually open on weekends, then you would calculate the extra hours you need to pay your staff. Reimbursement for your time or additional doctor time. As the investigator, you may choose to perform all the visits yourself or you might choose to delegate some of the responsibilities to sub-investigators. Specific study-related costs include compensation to both completed and discontinued patients. This is typically a set amount and is stipulated by the sponsor and informed consent. Supplies and additional equipment if needed. And your time as an investigator for preparatory work and overall involvement. When considering becoming a clinical investigator site, take the time to ask yourself the following questions. 1. Do I have a physical space to properly participate? Do I have enough examination rooms for efficient patient flow and a large enough waiting area to accommodate new participating patients? 2. Do I have sufficient staff and technicians to handle the planned patient volume and are they willing to perform some new duties? 3. Do I have enough time in my schedule and am I willing to work longer hours and or weekends? If I don't want to work longer hours, do I have the flexibility in my schedule to incorporate the clinical trial activities without adding significant hours, or do I have an associate who can help divide the additional workload? 4. Do I have the proper technology equipment needed initially to participate in the clinical trials in which I am interested? Once you've answered these questions, identify the type of trials you want to get involved in and the treatment and technology you want to study. Determine the size of the study and how many patients would need to enroll and complete to achieve the clinical significant findings. Then decide if your patient database is large enough or if you will need to recruit outside patients. There are different types of clinical research trials. Some are company sponsored, investigator sponsored, or sponsored by a nonprofit or institution. To seek them out, you can search online databases, register with the site, network with colleagues, ask your drug or device reps, develop a relationship with a CRO, some which specialize in ophthalmology, or ask the sponsor of an ongoing study if they need investigators. Working with a skilled CRO makes all the difference for a successful and smoothly run trial. A company will come into a practice to facilitate the trial, allowing the doctor to focus on the clinical care of the patient. In determining whether participating in clinical trials is right for you and your practice, consider the time factors discussed above. Other considerations may include the number of investigators required and any specific hurdles with regard to your location or community. If you weighed all the options and decided that becoming involved in a clinical trial makes sense for you, you'll find that offering trials is a meaningful way to contribute to the field of eye care, to the field of optometry, and to our general profession. Dr. Chin provided a lot of information about what it takes to be involved in clinical trials. We hope you found it useful. Still have questions? Let us know. Email me at kroman at bmctoday.com. Okay, time to get clinical right after this break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Our next and final segment of the episode is from none other than one of MOD's chief medical editors, Leslie O'Dell, medical director at Medical Optometry America in York, Pennsylvania. 
Dr. Odell is going to break down the topic of my biography. Tear film homeostasis is essential for the maintenance of a healthy ocular surface. There needs to be a perfect balance between the mucous aqueous layer and the lipid layer of the tear film. The lipid layer comes from the mybum that is secreted onto the ocular surface from the meibomian glands, which are located between the palpebral conjunctiva and the tarsal plate of the upper and lower eyelids. In 2011, the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society's International Workshop on Meibomian Gland Dysfunction, MGD, defined MGD as a chronic diffuse abnormality of the meibomian glands commonly characterized by terminal duct obstruction and or qualitative quantitative changes in the glandular secretion. It may result in the altercation of the tear film, symptoms of eye irritation, clinically apparent inflammation, and ocular surface disease. This was a pivotal point in dry eye disease management as the focus shifted from aqueous deficiency to evaporative disease. Mybography was first described in 1977 by Tappy as specialized imaging to capture the, the morphology of the meibomian glands in vivo. Over the past four decades, imaging of meibomian gland morphology in vivo has changed significantly. Innovations in technology have allowed us to easily integrate mybography into the clinic setting and to be easily captured during a patient examination with minimal time constraints. In 2008, Arita introduced the non-contact form of mybography to capture images at the slit lamp by using infrared filters without the use of translumination and a handheld light source. This technique improved not only image quality, but also patient comfort during imaging. Traditional IR mybography is expanding to laser confocal mybography, OCT mybography, and even anterior segment photography and meibomian gland clearing treatment device imaging. With the cost to acquire new technology now within reach for most clinicians, the standard of care for dry eye evaluation and screening patients should include mybography imaging to document gland structure and monitor for change over time. Capturing non-contact mybography images is only getting easier and is a skill a trained ophthalmic assistant can learn. Depending on the device used, the bottom eyelid is gently rolled away from the globe with either a handheld device, a cotton tip, or lid stick to expose the lower palpebral conjunctiva. One should be careful to expose as much of the lower lid as possible to allow for full visualization of the meibomian gland. Imaging superior lids is also performed with the traditional superior lid eversion technique. Once you have captured the quality mybography image, what do you look for when reviewing the image? There are standardized grading scales by which to evaluate meibomian gland atrophy, gland tortuosity, and gland segmentation. Meibomian gland grading remains an inconsistent process, and there are inter-observer differences among experts in the field that highlight the need for a standardized approach and learning to accurately grade meibomian images. 
With these inconsistencies in mind, Milton Hom, Claire Halloran, and I set out to standardize a way to analyze mybography images as it pertains to the three main characteristics, atrophy, tortuosity, and segmentation. After a training model was implemented, mass creators were asked to recreate a series of images and were found to be more consistent in inner observer grading. Mybomian gland atrophy is a partial loss of the mybomian gland. Arita et al. described partial glands as mybomian glands showing a partial loss from the orifice or fornix. Partial loss or atrophy should be evaluated by number and length of the patient's mybomian glands. Gland dropout is evaluated by the number of mybomian glands with complete loss from orifice to fornix. Tortuosity is considered present if there's at least one area in the gland that is 45 degrees bent away from midline, or if there is more than one bend in the gland, despite those being bent less than 45 degrees. The Halloran scale can be used as a point of reference when looking at mybography images for tortuosity. Segmentation of the mybomian gland is described as a disjointed appearance of the mybomian gland. Segmentation is often seen as a black line splitting the gland and can be large or very thin. The Leo segmentation grading scale is a novel approach to grade this finding. In some settings, mybography screening is important in much the same way as assessing IOP and is not billed to the patient, while other settings have a screening fee set by the practice. Once changes are detected, images can be captured and billed to the insurance for payment. The CPT codes used for mybography are 92285 for external ocular photography with interpretation and report documentation of medical progress and 0507T for near-infrared dual imaging, for example, simultaneous reflective and transilluminated light of mybomian glands, unilateral or bilateral, with interpretation and report. The coding is specific to the type of image captured and whether IR imaging is performed or not. It is good practice to have patients sign an advanced beneficiary notice to allow for patient payment if a particular insurer does not reimburse the practice for the submitted code and procedure. With Growing numbers of studies suggesting that MGD is prevalent in the pediatric population and gland atrophy correlating with as little as two hours of daily screen time use, we owe it to the patients we serve to take a proactive approach in assessing their mybomian gland health. Mybography is the imaging modality best suited for this task. It's affordable and it has an easy learning curve. confident in your ability to capture and interpret images to determine mybomian gland health? Let us know. We'll share your feedback with Dr. Odell. Well, once again, we've reached the end of another episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed it and were able to take away some helpful tips that will help you in your practice. As you await the next episode, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Until then, be well. Thanks for listening.